Good morning, folks. Been asked to preach on forgiveness this morning. It's a topic I'm nervous about preaching about. Um, I'm convinced it's good for us, though. And I'm convinced that what God wants us to teach us about it is good for us. Um, how about I pray for God's help as we have a look at it? You will find something under your chair. A practical guide to forgiveness, which I'll get you to pick up later. Don't look at it now. I shouldn't have told you. Let me pray. <laughs> Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us your word and that you speak to us about um, all sorts of good things and often difficult things too. Please help us to see so clearly today what forgiveness is about. Help us to see most clearly the forgiveness that your son has won for us by dying for our sins on the cross. And we pray, Father, that whatever resolutions people need to make at the end of this sermon would be uh, conducted well and that you would thoroughly equip each one of us to do those things. Amen. Friends, life is relationships. Life is relationships. That's why Mother's Day is a good thing, isn't it? Uh, I noticed it's the only day of the year that you can go to Coles the day before and you'll see a long line of young men holding a copy of Women's Weekly and a bouquet of flowers. Uh, I did, sorry, Mum, I didn't get you the Women's Weekly, I just got you the flowers. Uh, it's because mums are important and we want to honour that and that's a good tradition. Um, but life is relationships. We also live in a world where every person you'll ever meet and relate to is deeply prone to sin and all sorts of antisocial behaviour. Um, and so it means forgiveness is a very practical topic because relationships get broken. Now, I know this is a difficult topic for some of you. I've spoken to you about it. Um, some people, I don't know people here exactly in this boat, feel that they can't forgive. Um, they're thinking about situations that are so messy and confusing and they just don't think they've got it in them or they don't even know how. Well, how would I go about it? Just confused. Others of us wish we could be forgiven, don't we? We wish we hadn't done that deed, destroyed that relationship, we'd do anything to take it back. Perhaps the other person's unwilling to forgive you, perhaps the other person's no longer around to forgive you. And so many of us carry heavy, heavy weights around. Friends, I want us to understand forgiveness today, and I want us to understand exactly what it is and what it's not. Um, over the last 50 years, forgiveness has been redefined, uh, unfortunately, in a way that is opposed to how the Bible talks about it. Um, when the Bible talks about forgiveness, it's talking about fixing relationships. The goal of forgiveness is reconciliation. It's about aiming to bring reconciliation through generously withholding guilt and debt from people. However, there's this thing called therapeutic forgiveness, which is an alternative view that's sort of emerged over the last little while, which says forgiveness isn't about your relationships at all. It's about your feelings. It's just about sorting your feelings out. So for many people, forgiveness has simply been defined as an aspect of personal therapy. You go to the counsellor's office, you work through your feelings. When your feelings are resolved, you've forgiven. You don't need to deal with the person that has wronged you or you've wronged. You just have to deal with your feelings. But in the Bible, forgiveness is about fixing relationships, not just fixing feelings. Now, I'm not criticising good counselling. I think it's very important. I'm not criticising dealing with feelings well. I think that's very important too. But it has to be understood within a much bigger framework about fixing relationships and dealing with the actual harm that's been caused within relationships. Uh, if we trade in God's view of forgiveness for feelings therapy alone, I think we'll be trading forgiveness for emotional band-aids and it won't help us. Let me quickly go through uh, the difference. 
and I've got this table which is probably horrible on the screen, quite frankly, um, but I think you'll get a feel of what I'm talking about. Um, so therapeutic view of forgiveness teaches forgiveness is a feeling, but in the Bible, forgiveness is a commitment, it's a choice. It's a decision to say, I'll withhold the wrong that this person's done against them. Therapeutic forgiveness says that it occurs within my heart and mind. That's it, I just fix my feelings. Whereas biblical forgiveness says it occurs between two or more parties, the offending party and the offended party. Therapeutic forgiveness sounds wonderful because it says forgiveness is unconditional. You should always forgive no matter what. Sounds wonderful because the Bible actually says you shouldn't. Well, not exactly. The Bible says that forgiveness isn't actually effective until the other person repents. We should stand ready to forgive... Hold out forgiveness as a gift, but the gift only becomes effective if the offender repents and accepts it. Now, therapeutic forgiveness says unconditional. Sounds great, but what they're actually talking about is, well, you've got to fix your feelings no matter what. It's not actually about fixing a relationship. Therapeutic forgiveness finds the motivation for forgiveness in self-interest. It's about fixing me and my feelings, whereas in the Bible, forgiveness, amazingly, is about love and concern for the person who's wronged you. It's an astonishing thing. Therapeutic forgiveness defines forgiveness by how I feel. Forgive everything that makes you bad, but in the Bible it's defined by right and wrong, and it needs, we need to establish who actually did wrong and whether it was wrong. And this is where therapeutic forgiveness is really unjust, because if you read some books that come to this perspective, they'll say, anything, anybody you blame for your feelings, you need to forgive them, you need to deal with those feelings. It doesn't matter whether it was right or wrong or not. And so you'll even read, you can forgive God. If you feel angry with God, forgive God which is blasphemous from the perspective of the Bible because God does no wrong. It's very unjust at that point. Therapeutic forgiveness has no concern for reconciliation or relationships, whereas in the Bible, forgiveness naturally moves that way. Therapeutic forgiveness cheapens sin because it's just concerned with our feelings and it won't call out sin for what it is. Whereas in the Bible, forgiveness demands that wrongdoing be named and recognised for what it is and that the wrongdoer genuinely repent of their sin. Biblical forgiveness is concerned with feelings, but within that bigger framework. So forgiveness and feelings therapy are not the same thing. Now, what I've just described to you may scare you, particularly if you think, I've dealt with my feelings with this thing and I thought that was it. You may have things to open up after today. Um, But if I'm right, then a fake version of forgiveness is no good for you and more will be needed, and that's actually best for you. Now, friends, I want to tell you a parable... Uh, Jesus told parables, the story with a hidden meaning. I'm going to make one up. Uh, I want you to imagine a man hobbling around. He's limping extremely badly. You ask the guy, are you okay? And he says, yeah, of course I'm okay. I, 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 it hurts, but like, I've learned to walk in a different way, so I don't really feel it anymore. And you look at his leg as he hobbles off, and he's covered it with a big, giant Band-Aid. And you think, whatever is under that Band-Aid is not okay. He's actually been stabbed in the leg. It's three inches deep, but he thinks he's solved the problem with a Band-Aid and changing the way he walks. I'm sure everybody here would agree that the most loving thing you can do for that guy is insist that he take the Band-Aid off and take a good hard look at what's underneath and deal with the real problem. Now, it's important to interpret parables rightly. It's natural to assume that the harm this guy is suffering is actually harm that he has suffered at the hands of somebody else, the, 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 the harm that somebody has done to him. It isn't. Um, in my parable, the wound actually stands for that relationship of yours, perhaps, that's been limping around pretending that it's okay. And yet your relationship limps, and behind the superficial smiley faces and the awkward conversations, there's a real harm that's been left to fester that hasn't been repaired. And there's a band-aid on a relationship where trust has been shattered, perhaps. 
and we fooled ourselves into thinking it's okay. But the only solution is a painful one. It means taking the Band-Aid off and taking a look at what's underneath. If it's been left for a time, maybe it's festered, maybe it's inflamed, maybe the onset of gangrene's happened already. But the starter's looking at it. Friends, why do I give you such a disgusting illustration? Because relationships with stab wounds covered with Band-Aids cannot go the distance. That's the truth. A family with unattended stab wounds cannot last. A marriage with unattended stab wounds cannot last. A church with unattended stab wounds cannot last. You need to pull the band-aid off and deal with the real issue. And that's what forgiveness is about. And if you address it today, then perhaps amputation of relationship won't be its future. But friends, that process will probably be hard if it's significant. Um, There probably will be tears and there may well be more pain and more difficulty before it gets better. That's what's at stake. Friends, the foundation of Christian forgiveness is knowing Jesus. Today I want to say there's three things you need to know about Jesus. You need to know Jesus in these three ways to forgive, I think. You need to know Jesus as forgiver. You need to know Jesus as healer. And you need to know Jesus as judge. Forgiver, if you're a Christian, is pretty obvious. Jesus is the forgiver. He claimed very early in his ministry, I have authority to forgive sins. I can forgive people. And that's what his death was about. He died on the cross to take the punishment that my sins deserve so that I could be forgiven and go free. Friends, I am a forgiven person because I trust Jesus. There should be a big, huge sign around my neck that says forgiven person because it's my identity. It, it defines everything about me. Forgiven person. And that's an absolute game changer for how I approach forgiving other people and how we should approach forgiving other people. The second thing we need to know about Jesus is that Jesus is a healer. That's really important where we're talking about situations where there has been the kind of harm that you just can't even speak of. It's so bad. Uh, People have been harmed irreparably. And in the face of really bad evil and suffering, you need to know Jesus promises healing. Some now, but mostly when he comes to bring his kingdom. There's such wonderful promises in scripture. Revelation 21, this is what it'll be like when God brings his kingdom. This is what Jesus' healing looks like. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he'll dwell with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Confidence in a Jesus who heals is needed to forgive. may surprise you though, perhaps not after Ian's prayer, that you also need to know Jesus as judge. Uh, When you hear about that kidnapping, you'd be pleased to know that Jesus will judge the world in justice. It's his job, he'll do it. And so saying, don't don't seek revenge, just, it seems okay when the offence is small enough, but when real evil happens, you need to know Jesus will judge the world with power and justice and completely and decisively, and you will be satisfied. And so we hear things like this to do with forgiveness in the Bible as well. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful that you do right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. That's a very solemn promise. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Our messy quests for justice will just turn into awful, awful vengeance. 
Jesus can serve for justice won't. Leave condemnation to the Lord Jesus. He'll do the job properly. And part of becoming a Christian is realising Jesus is the judge, not me. To forgive well, we need to know Jesus is forgiver, he's healer and he's judge. And we need to know that he does those things in perfect harmony. Here's what I think stops a lot of people forgiving. We feel defensive and tense about it because we want it to turn out right. We feel the injustice of it. And so we're defensive, we're reluctant to get let go of hurts and feelings because we feel that burdened, and yet that's Jesus' problem. And that's wonderful that it's Jesus' problem. And so you can actually hand it over to Jesus' hands, having confidence in him and his ability to forgive, to heal, and to judge perfectly. <laughs> so friends, exhale, let go of your fears, relax your defenses, lower your blood pressure. Jesus has got this. Have confidence in him as healer, forgiver, judge. And as you let that sink in, that's how we'll be able to forgive. Now, we read in our Bible reading a couple of things about forgiveness, and it's supposed to be how God forgives us. Uh, So in Colossians 3, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. More terrifying, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive the others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Christians are called to forgive as God forgave. In fact, Christians must forgive as God forgave. So how does God forgive, right? A few things. Most obviously, he withholds retribution. He says, you will never suffer my judgment. You're a forgiven person. That's what we get in Jesus. Second thing, God eagerly seeks out the repentance of people who have wronged him. It's extraordinary in scripture. God doesn't just sort of say, theoretically, I'll forgive you if you kind of jump through enough hoops and make your way up to me. He begs people. I'm going to forgive you. Take the forgiveness for crying out loud. Look at, look at Ezekiel 18. Repent, turn away from your offences, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of the offences you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. This is God begging with his people. God seeks the repentance. To, he, he seeks out to forgive people. He wants to forgive them if only they'll accept the gift. The third thing, God promises to forget our sins. Uh, I was asked a really good question about this during the week. Uh, Does God forgive and forget? And if he does, are we supposed to forget sins against us? It doesn't seem like it's possible. Um, It comes from the book of Jeremiah where it says that God promises to remember the sins no more, our sins no more, when he forgives us, right? So does God do the divine equivalent of brain surgery on himself when he forgives? Is the question. Well, no, he doesn't. Um, Remember basically means... Bring something to mind in order to act on the basis of it. So Jeremiah 14, this is what God says. He says, this is the opposite, but it's talking about how he uses the word remember. He says about Israel, they greatly love to wander, they don't restrain their feet. So the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. It's not saying God suddenly woke up and went, wow, these people are sinners. (laughs) It's saying God went, these people are sinners and I will put that fact between me and them and it will define the way I relate to them now. Here's the flip side. Here's, here's Jeremiah 31. This is what's promised to us in Jesus, and it's wonderful. This is the covenant I'll make with people of Israel after this time, declares the Lord. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That thing in the middle of our relationship, he will never relate to us on the basis of that ever again. It'll be done away with. It won't be part of his memory, if you want to call it that, of the things he uses to relate to us on the basis of. It just won't be there anymore. He'll relate to us on the basis of his generosity towards us instead. 
So for us, when it comes to forgiving, it doesn't mean you have to do brain surgery, you don't have to make the memory go away. But actually, sometimes you need the memory because it will prevent further harm, won't it? Sometimes. But it does mean don't linger on the memory, it does, means don't bring it to mind, and it does, means don't let that memory shape the way you think and feel about the relationship. If it's forgiven, then that memory oughtn't shape the relationship anymore. That's what forgiveness is. Last thing is, God's forgiveness brings reconciliation. If you're a Christian, I know that you know that God doesn't say to us, I forgive you and now I'll have nothing to do with you ever again. God says, you're part of my family now, I'm coming into a right relationship with you now, you'll be part of my family forever. Forgiveness naturally moves to reconciliation in the Bible very consistently. That's what God does for us, that's how God forgives. Now let me tell you a story, because we like stories. Uh, even if it's about an old Anglican. This is Thomas Cranmer. He's basically the grandfather of Anglicanism. Uh, he died in 1555. That's kind of his vintage. But he lived and died so that people would come to know forgiveness in Jesus and England would know the Christianity of the Bible and not of superstition and, and, and so on. Um, and his work was very dangerous. Uh, he, king Henry VIII, awful king, <laughs> was king at the time, very ruthless man. And Cranmer had lots of enemies in the church, in the upper class and in the court, many of them close to the king. And seeing as Henry's so paranoid, all you need to do to get somebody executed often is start a rumour. Very, very dangerous place for Cranmer to be. But what Cranmer's enemies never, ever understood, and they were absolutely bewildered by, actually, constantly, was how Cranmer forgave everybody who did something against him all the time. They knew it. it he was notorious for it, actually. He just didn't enter into that ruthless pattern of court politics that got people killed. He knew Jesus forgave him, so he forgave other people. And you better believe that was costly in that context. Everybody knew. This is what Cranmer did when somebody wronged him. Three-part pattern. He disciplined them. I mean, he was archbishop. If a bishop does something wrong, he's got to have some sort of right consequence of that. Then he forgave them. Then he restored them to their original relationship with him as if nothing had occurred. And it was predictable. He did it every time. It was amazing. Even when a lot was at stake. In 1543, he uncovered a major conspiracy against him, which, if it succeeded, would have ended in his execution. It involved lots of people all over England, lots of upper-class people. Two in particular were trusted colleagues who worked closely with him that he entrusted important responsibilities to day by day, and they were in on it. And it would have ended in his execution. How do you respond? Well, Cranmer disciplined them, he forgave them, and then he restored them to their roles and responsibilities and their right relationship with him. Two years later, he made one of them a bishop, That's extraordinary. But this is a man who knows that Jesus has forgiven him. What was his secret? Jesus told a story about forgiveness. It's a great story. Somebody asks, hey, how many times should I forgive someone? Seven's a pretty big number, don't you think? Jesus says, well, multiply that a couple of times and you're getting somewhere. And then he tells this story. He says, there's a man who owes the king a debt equivalent to 193,000 years wages. That's what it is, 193,000 years wages in the story. He begs for forgiveness and the king cancels his entire debt. <laughs> the man ruthlessly responds by going down the road and ripping into a guy who owes him a mere few months' wages. Sure, a significant debt. But in the context of what had occurred that day, nothing. <laughs> How did Kremler forgive? He was convinced that whatever wrong they did to him was peanuts compared to the cost of forgiveness Jesus had paid for him. When looking at the cross, it seemed only right to him to forgive in that way.
Friends, I've got to tell you this story. Um, it's a fairly moving story, but it just highlights things too well. And I apologise if I cry. A theologian I like to read is a guy called Miroslav Volf. He talks about forgiveness a lot. He's written about four books on forgiveness, partly because he's had so much to forgive and his family's had so much to forgive. One example is worth sharing. When he was one year old, he never knew about this, experienced it because he can't remember, but his five-year-old brother Daniel died. Uh, for most of his life, Miroslav only knew half the story. He had a favourite aunt, Milika, who he thought very highly of, and she loved, he loved her very dearly until she died at the age of 91. And then when he was 48, he was astonished when casually in conversation it came up with his mother that Aunt Milika was partly to blame for Daniel's death. One afternoon, 1957, she was supposed to be watching him, but he slipped out the front gate, walked two blocks to the local military base to play with his soldiers, as he called them. There was a military base. These young guys loved their little five-year-old friend who was very entertaining. It was a nice relationship. But on that day, one of the soldiers put Daniel on a horse-drawn bread wagon and he fell and got caught and he died on the way to hospital. Daniel died because Aunt Milika failed to watch him, and because a young soldier carelessly placed him in danger. Miroslav was astonished. He'd never heard about this. Let me just read it. Um, Should I have told you, my mother replied to me, half unsure that she did the right thing. Most people would, I thought. When terrible things happen, people find someone to blame, even if there's no one to blame. Somebody must be at fault, they think, and they go on to the first plausible candidate into a culprit. Aunt Milika was to be blamed, yet neither of my parents blamed her in front of the children. Aunt Milika, the guilty one, remained my untainted angel. She's a saint, I thought, this mother of mine, whose fourth child was killed because those in charge were irresponsible and stupidly careless. My mother's pain was immeasurable, and it didn't go away even half a century later. Here's a bit of love. The pain of that terrible loss lingers on, but bitterness and resentment against those who are responsible are gone. It was healed at the foot of the cross as my mother gazed upon the son who was killed and reflected about the God who forgave. Aunt Milica was forgiven and there was no more talk of her guilt, not even talk about her having been guilty. As far as I was concerned, she was innocent. What about that soldier that put Daniel on the bread wagon? That's the half of the story Milosev did know well. The soldier felt terrible, so terrible in fact he had to be admitted to hospital. My father, with a wound in his heart that would never quite heal, went to visit him to forgive, to, to comfort the one whose carelessness had caused him so much grief and to tell him that my mother and he forgave him. In the courtroom too, my father insisted that he and my mother, who was too broken-hearted to take part in the hearing, had forgiven They wouldn't press charges, he said. Why should one more mother be plunged into grief, this time because the life of her son, a good boy but careless in a crucial moment, was ruined by the hands of justice? After the soldier was discharged from the army and went home unpunished, my father visited him even though it took two days to get there. He was concerned for the soldier and wanted to talk to him more about God's love, which is greater than our accusing hearts, and of my parents' forgiveness. The reason my parents forgave was very simple. God forgave them, and so they forgave the soldier. Friends, here's what I want to say to you today. 
if you know Jesus, forgive a healer and judge, you were able to forgive like that. In fact, you must forgive. The answer is always, always found as looking to the cross and noticing that big, fat, forgiven sign around your own neck and just cherishing it. That's what the death of Jesus looks like. A media hits the earth, destroys everything it impacts, but the initial impact isn't the end. It spreads out and it carries the carnage in its wake and everything just is destroyed by it. Jesus' death is the forgiveness version of that. Everyone who stands under the cross of Jesus looks for forgiveness and finds their need completely filled, their sins utterly obliterated. But as people experience the impact of that forgiveness on their lives, it spreads. People notice these Christians don't engage with people who wrong them the same way anymore. They forgive. And so the carnage of forgiveness extends and continues and people notice. And if they're thinking clearly, they'll look back at the initial impact and wonder what on earth was that that was going on there. What on earth can cause forgiveness like this? Christians need to be eager for forgiveness and reconciliation to occur, regardless of which side we're on, friends. Um, We should be the one to initiate fixing things. Uh, That's especially the case if we're the one who did wrong. It was a uh, bit we didn't read, um, which I'll put on the screen. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. You sinned against them. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and come and offer your gift. Before you get on with business with God, fix your relationship. Take the initiative. Make it happen. We serve the Prince of Peace. We are called to bring peace to our relationships wherever we can, as much as it is up to us. As Romans 12 said, as we read earlier, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do everything to fix your relationships that you possibly can because we serve the Prince of Peace. Now, under your chair, you've got it's a practical guide to what forgiveness should look like. It's worth grabbing that. Um, it's a practical sermon, so I gave you a practical guide. Christian forgiveness begins with knowing I'm forgiven by God. It begins with me realising I have a big, fat, forgiven sign wrapped around my neck. <laughs> and, and I just own that and love that. That's where it starts. Um, our forgiveness is part of a larger two-way process of reconciliation. That's the context. Um, the offended party holds out the gift of forgiveness with the intent of moving to reconciliation, but forgiveness to be effective, the offender needs to repent, uh, admit they were wrong, and pursue reparation. So first of all, I'll just go through the thing there at the top of your sheet. You've got uh, the offended party, first of up, wraps forgiveness up as a gift, like God did, and stands ready to forgiveness, even pleads with people to be forgiven to them. Now, that's got two steps. The first step is judgment. Forgiveness always involves judgment, friends. It's very important that you realise that. It's crucial for real forgiveness that there is judgment. What do I mean by judgment? I mean that was wrong. That thing there you did, that was wrong. Forgiveness is largely about labelling the thing rightly that was wrong and agreeing on it. That's the starting point. That action of yours was wrong, but we only say that to somebody we're forgiving in the context of but I am willing to remove that from record. I'm willing to remove that lump between our relationship from the things that we relate on the basis of now. That was wrong, and I'm willing to get rid of it. So if you have a look at the five promises of forgiveness there at the bot below, below the, the man who's forgiving, um, you'll see five promises that are implied when you forgive someone. This is what it means to forgive someone. You don't need to necessarily say all these things, but this is how you need to understand it. 
I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring this incident again and use it against you. I'll not talk to others about this incident. I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. I will not nurse feelings of bitterness, resentment or anger towards you. You know where you want to hold on to your hurt and treasure it and nurse it and nurture it? I won't do that. I may still be hurt, but I won't deliberately set out to make my feelings grow and maintain. Um, That's a really big deal. That's forgiving as God forgave. That's very, very costly to forgive like that. Forgiveness is very costly, like Jesus' forgiveness was very costly. Second thing, though, the offending party, for forgiveness to be effective, needs to take three steps, basically repenting and accepting the gift. They need to agree the action was wrong and confess to it. My action was wrong. They need to fully own the reality of what they did and not minimise it and not redefine it as something less significant, right? Very important. They need to express, repent, and appropriate remorse that's proportionate to the level of what happened. I'm sorry, that was really awful, if it was really awful. Um, And lastly, part of sincere repentance is that they'll pursue reparation. I want to fix that any way I can. That's sincere repentance. It's really important. Now, in that context, and only in that context, can both parties hope to move to reconciliation, restoring, fixing the relationship. If there's a spanner at the works at any point there that's going to be hindered at least, maybe stopped entirely. Um, Restoring the relationship at that point can be instantaneous, but frankly, depending on how bad the thing is and how bad the damage is, it could be a very, very long process. Um, And there could be ongoing danger to sort through as well. We'll talk about that just at the end. Now, first of all, look at the process. What's uh, What's in my power to control here? Always one side. Very important to notice that. You can't control this process. All you can control is one side of it. If you're the offended party, you can, um, you, you can uh, offer forgiveness to them, but you can't make them accept it. You can't make them agree with you. You can't force them to re-reconcile. And, and same with the other side. You can ask for forgiveness. You can express remorse. But if they aren't willing to engage in the process, it won't occur. That's why the Bible says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, we need to be equipped with the right language. There's a good bit, bit there on the, the offending side, which says the seven A's of confession. I've totally plagiarised this. Um, it's from a book called The Peacemaker by a guy called Carl, Ken Sand, I think is his name. I can't remember. Um, it says, address everyone involved. If, you're, if you've wronged more than one person, talk to all of those people. Avoid if, button maybe. Don't qualify apologies. If you want to talk about other things that are relevant, separate issue. An apology sounds like, I did this, it was wrong, I am sorry. Any but there was extenuating circumstances just undermines the whole process. Um, Admit specifically, not generally, here's what I did. Acknowledge the hurt, including their feelings, whether physical or all sorts of harm that you might have caused them. Acknowledge that. Accept consequences, alter your behaviour, and ask for forgiveness. I was wrong, please forgive me. Now, the list at the bottom, the five L's of confrontation, I've completely made up based on what I've read and understood from the Bible um, from this sermon, from, from preparing for it. Uh, I've got to be desperate trying to get five L's for the second one. But anyway, uh, love your offender and confront them wanting what's best for them. That obviously follows from what we've learned. Lavish your approach in humility, gentleness, patience, and, and so on. That wonderful passage in, in, in Colossians 3.12, which just says, uh, I've just got to read it. Colossians 3.12, it just says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. Oh, sorry, before that. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You'll need all those things 
with extra when it comes to confronting somebody well. Because if you're not gentle, it probably won't go well. If you're not humble, you won't realise that maybe you, you got it wrong. Maybe you're partly to blame as well. Um, three, label wrongful actions specifically, not in general. That just follows from what we heard about confession. Um, so it's not you always do X. It's on Tuesday you do this. <laughs> um, very important, number four, locate your feelings in you and their actions with them, but feel free to speak about both. Now, the conversation needs to maintain that each person owns their own actions and feelings as their thing. You can't say, you made me feel. It's never an accurate statement. Your feelings are how you responded to what they actually did. Now, those two things can be connected. And so you can say, when you did this, I felt this. When you did this, I felt really small. I felt like you completely disregarded me. I felt really small. That's a, that's a good way of bringing it up. You made me feel really small is never accurate. They did something that led to you feeling small. Uh, the last one, long to bring peace and reconciliation to the situation and the relationship. Frankly, these things don't always go well. Often they don't. But continue in the attitude of wanting it to be fixed sincerely and do all you can to be at peace with everyone. Now, um, I asked during the week for questions from people about forgiveness and all the difficult questions that are going through your head right now, looking at this neat little diagram about how forgiveness should work, are about when the process breaks down. Or they're about when the, consequences, when, when the harm done in the, the wrongdoing initially is so bad that you think this is just naive. Um, I want to just answer a few questions really quickly. Um, First question, what if they won't repent? How do I relate to unrepentant people? Well, it's going to clog up the the gears of reconciliation. Um, You need to ensure you've communicated clearly and you need to ensure that if they disagree about what the wrongdoing was, they will interpret it differently, that you listen humbly and work through it from there. Um, If they just won't enter into it, then all you can do is keep relating with grace and hope that they will enter into it. I will say, though, we read in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, there is a method that Jesus gave us as a Christian person wrongs us, and that is go alone. If they won't listen to you, take a wise Christian friend. If they won't listen to the two of you, talk to Stuart on me. It's a church matter. Leaving the relationship like that is not okay for Christians. If it's somebody who's not a Christian, it's far more difficult. Maybe they just can't move forward from there. Pray about it. Um, what if the re- issue is, inverted commas, resolved without repent- repentance and forgiveness? What if there's just a band-aid on a deep wound? Um, should I bring it up? Uh, it's really a call about the significance of the sin and the ongoing impact it has on the relationship. So if there's a stab wound on the relationship, you have to bring it up. Band-aid fixes are always bad and we need to move beyond them and, and fix it properly. Um, I can't forgive them for what they did. Not a question, a statement that I've heard more than once. Um, first, if you're at that point, you have my sincere concern, what they did to you must have been very significant. Um, the other thing I'm concerned about, though, is what Jesus said in Matthew 6, which is, if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. If you in your heart of hearts are saying, I can't forgive them for what they did, then please realise your salvation is probably at stake here. And please do not go home today without talking to me or Stuart. Please don't go home today without talking to me or Stuart. Forgiveness for you may be a very long process, but it's a possible process. Forgiveness is possible by God's grace, even in your situation, and you can't just leave it. I know that's a painful answer, but out of my love for you, that's the right answer. You've got to deal with it, and we'd love to help you with that. Um, what if the, they play the Christians have to forgive card? Won't forgiving them make me a doormat? Not if you do it right. Um, Forgiveness isn't cheap, and we must not tolerate other people treating it as cheap. 
I'm sorry that you feel so bad, so you forgive, right? Cool, let's move on. You're allowed to say, it's absolutely appropriate that you say, hang on, I don't think you've understood what you did to me and how you hurt me. And for this relationship to move forward, you need to acknowledge what's really going on here. That is more than appropriate. It is not right to be a doormat. It's not right to just leave them relabeling what happened so that they feel better. Biblical forgiveness always means naming wrong for what it is and calling the other person to recognise that before forgiveness is, becomes effective. What if they won't forgive me? Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. Ask him to forgive you and you are forgiven. However, if they are still around, continue to be eager to be reconciled to the other person if there's opportunity, but talk to God about it because he offers forgiveness to you. The last one I have to answer because it's the question people ask. What if the wrongdoing was catastrophically bad, psychologically, physically, emotionally, you know, the sort of thing I'm talking about? What if there's ongoing danger in the relationship? Um, Those are very significant issues that have to be dealt with case by case. If you've got that sort of issue and it's pressing, you need to talk specifically to somebody about it. And if Stuart and I aren't equipped to deal with that well, we can refer you to somebody who can. Um, But there's a few general principles that I want to make clear. First, offering forgiveness never has to mean putting yourself in further danger. Don't put yourself in further danger. That's not part of forgiveness. Second, in really bad cases, the repentance of the wrongdoer is even more crucial than at any other time because forgiveness involves labelling the wrongdoing accurately and for the person to recognise exactly what they did and repent in a way that, that fits with the size of the sin. And so real repentance for somebody that did that awful thing to you, by definition, they must be extremely remorseful if they're repentant. They must be extremely eager that you would never be put in harm's way again from them, danger from them, and therefore they should want appropriate boundaries to, be, to exist in your relationship moving forward. And if that's not the way they're thinking about it, I don't think they've labelled the wrong right yet, and I don't think they are ready to move on to reconciliation. That's their problem. They have to recognise the size of the sin. Third, I want to say forgiveness can be a long process. I'm thinking of a few friends of mine here uh, who are moving through that process. It'll take care and help over years, both from God and other people. But the last thing I want to say about that is, if you're hurting, recognise that Jesus will one day bring you healing from your grief, which is more full and complete than you can possibly imagine. He will. You can hand it to Jesus. Jesus is forgiver, healer and judge. We have a God who's forgiven us in an absolutely staggering way. And he doesn't just leave us to our own resources to forgive. He gives us God's people. He gives us the power of his spirit to move forward. When we pray to him, he listens and he helps us. And Stuart and I, as pastors in this church, would be only too eager to help you if you're having a difficult time moving towards forgiveness now. Friends, I want us to end with a time of prayer where I give you a chance to pray about the thing you're thinking about right now. And if you've got relationship business to attend to as a result of this sermon, I want you to pray that that would go well. Let me start and then I'll leave time for you to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for the full and free forgiveness he offers to us. Thank you that we have the hope of eternal life and thank you that he is a competent forgiver, healer and judge. As our Father in heaven, please hear our prayers now.
Heavenly Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. And I want to pray that where this is especially difficult for people, that in the next very short while, there would be very clear steps to follow for people who need them and a great deal of strength from the power of your spirit to do those things. And I ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.